Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is writer, novelist and cultural historian John Higgs, who joined me to talk about his latest book, a biography of the visionary poet and artist William Blake. Perhaps best known as the author of the hymn Jerusalem, Blake's creative genius was shaped by a lifetime of unusual visionary experiences and his ability to interpret and discern their meaning through his poetry, writing and artwork, building a mythology that blends religion, psychology and occult philosophy in equal part, but retaining an enigmatic originality that is still not fully understood today. In William Blake vs. The World, John takes the reader on a journey through Blake's eccentric life and worldview, and looks at how that can be examined alongside contemporary historic and political events, as well as more modern insights obtained through neuroscience, quantum theory, and comparative theology. As you can imagine, this was a really interesting conversation. Enjoy! John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. I think most people who uh, know the name William Blake might associate him with something like Jerusalem or his poem, The Tiger. But the yeah. the man himself is a, a far more enigmatic character, I think. Yeah, absolutely. He's just one of those uh, people who's just a total rabbit hole. You know, the more you, you fall down into his world, the sort of the deeper and richer it becomes. In your book, you you very much focus on the visions that he had and how they informed his 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 view of the world. Yeah, I I think you have to really. I think you can't um, begin to get your head around Blake without also getting your head around what visions are, what the vision state is, and and just trying to. Um, uh, have a framework in mind to uh, process what he's saying. I guess because you know, in, in the you know, in the twenty first century, we we tend to be fairly rational and fairly secular people, and we don't tend to know people who have visions. Um, we know people who may be artists. We know people who may paint or or write poems or or things like that. But people who have conversations with other realms um, are few and far between. Well. We probably actually you this podcast and the listeners probably do know some <laughs> some people like that, but um, it's it's absolutely necessary for when you're you're trying to understand what Blake was trying to tell us to sort of you know um, accept this side of him and uh, and understand this side of him, I guess. Mm, and they started at an early age. I, I that was something that surprised me a little. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was all throughout his life, really. There's uh, his his wife uh, is on record of reminding him of that time. Um, uh, the face of God pressed in through his his bedroom window and scared the bejesus out of him when he was four years old. Um, and uh, there's a very famous uh, case of of when he he went walking in over what is now South London and all the way to Peckham Rye, and he sat at. Uh, at the feet of this this tree and looked up and on every bough there was an angel whose angels bespangled the tree as it as it was it was later said and this was as an eight-year-old boy he was sort of seeing all these and he still thought this was normal 
So he went home and he told his parents and he was just shocked that his father was going to beat him for lying. He hadn't realised that what he saw was not what everyone else saw and, until that point. Mm, and so how how did he sort of integrate that into his life in general? It, did he kind of pursue a, a career as in art as a means to sort of service his ability to see the world in this way? Um, he certainly, it certainly fitted well um, with him, but he, 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 it was normal for him, basically. It was, it was, it just assumed everyone else should accept it. You know, he never had doubt or anything like that. He was also, also clear that he understood that what he was experiencing was in his mind. Mm. Um, he didn't mistake it for consensus reality. Uh, there's a story of um, a woman coming up to a party and him talking of this vision he's just had. And, and she said, but where did you see this, Mr. Blake? And he just tapped his forehead and said, in here, madam, in here. So he, he understood that it was, um, uh, it, was, it was mental and internal, but he didn't think that that meant any less of it. Uh, you know, it was it was still um, of profound importance uh, and utterly enriched his life. Uh, and it was what life was all about. Um, so he, he, he had no time for doubt. You know, he just his his visions were there uh, and they were important to him. And he sort of shaped his life around them, I guess. Early on in the book, you include, uh, I think, a letter he wrote to a friend where he talks about having uh, an argument with a, a thistle, which I found really entertaining, and and it seems to, <laughs> in that he talks a bit about the different levels of of vision that he has, so twofold vision and fourfold vision. Yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about that argument with the thistle, and and then how that relates to the sort of the levels of of insight and vision that he understood that he had? Sure. This was a letter to his his patron and friend, Thomas Butts. Uh, and it was in, I think, around 1800, 1801, something like that, after he'd moved down to Felpham on the on the Sussex coast. And he'd go out walking across the South Downs. Uh, and, <laughs> and in one instance, he just comes across this thistle and gets into an argument with it. And it's... Um, it's just so Blake, so Blake for so many reasons. It's a, it's a clear uh, uh, indicator of why he was very different to the rest of the Romantics. He's often grouped with the Romantics. He was sort of a little bit earlier, but that's how he sort of understood. You know, the way, the way that William Wordsworth related to uh, the sight of a daffodil, very different to the way Blake related to this thistle. Um, but he saw this thistle as like a hectoring old man that was sort of uh, giving him grief about his about his life choices. And he got into an argument with this, this thistle. And he knew at the same time that it was a thistle. And he called this double vision, where there was his internal uh, world and the ex- external world. Um, and our perception was um, uh, a mixture of the two. Um, what he hated was what he called single vision, which is really the scientific... Um, objective observation with no uh, sort of subjective component to it. This is what it's like the scientific measurement, uh, dispassionate, uh, as, if, as if the observer was not present. Um, uh, he, he would talk about, pray God us keep from single vision and Newton's sleep. Um, because this isn't 
what the world was about. The world was very much about the, um, the combination of our internal uh, uh, internal consciousness and the physical world out there. And he he wrote that this was his normal uh, way of perceiving the world. This double vision, this mixture of imagination and and, and normal perception was normal for him. So he had a very, very strong and uh, vivid imagination. But at times, it, things would move beyond um, this this double vision that he had. And it, often it was like, it sort of came on him as a reward for um, a creative breakthrough or, um, or an emotional breakthrough. Or when, he, when, he, when he, he'd sort of, when, he, when it was felt that he deserved it, this sort of sense of grace just descended on him. Uh, this sense that everything was right and everything was fine, all cares fall away, and all um, all sort of clashes and all sorts of concerns and worries and guilt and fear. These were all sort of dissolving. He called this um, this state of mind Beulah, a place called Beulah, and it's you know it's a thing that there's a lot of uh, literature about it. The, the the Kundalini experience is sounds very very familiar. Uh, similar to it the Timothy Leary called it the neurosemantic level as I said often it's just called grace this sense that everything is just fine and all you have to do is be and it's it can sound like some descriptions of heaven but not for Blake it was just too passive for Blake it was like a reward it was wonderful when it happened um, but it wasn't the point of life it wasn't the goal to get into this sort of this blissful sort of sort of passive state and it sort of worked as, as a buffer to the real vision state the re and this is the one that's very very difficult to sort of explain uh, and talk about in sort of normal terms which is what he called fourfold vision this was this glimpse of eternity this is what sort of came after after it and this this threefold vision this 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 Beulah state was almost like a buffer to sort of protect the mind before it goes into um, uh, you know the, the, the full-on experience of um, outside of space and time, for want of a better way of describing it. So he, he sort of categorised these different states of, of, of vision, as as you said, if that if that help, if that explains it at all. No, it it definitely does. I mean, how do you think he he was able to sort of contextualise that so well? Because I imagine. For myself, it it doesn't seem as though he had a wish to live more in one of these places than the other. He he mm. was able to sort of he he could contextualize them against each other and 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 not feel like he was missing something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something he was very strong at was conceptualizing and framing his experiences on his own terms. He wasn't sent to school as a child. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, when you're trying to work out his philosophy, his, his worldview, his, his religion or whatever you, you want to call it, it doesn't fit into any of our normal boxes. It's like he would have called himself a Christian uh, and been convinced that he was a good, true Christian. But his definition of Christianity is so different to most modern Christians. Uh, he, he thought that Jesus was essentially the imagination imagination was the divine part of of um of our world 
uh, and to experience it inside it was the was the light of Jesus for want of something like that and you know he never went to church and he um he referred to the God as the old of the Old Testament as Nobo Daddy. So he's he's not a good candidate for a, a typical Christian. But you can find aspects of, of Taoist thought in him and, and Vedic thought. Uh, there's a lot of Gnosticism in there. You could make a strong case uh, that he was an atheist, although he would have hated it. But he did talk about um, all the gods, angels, demons and everything being internal. Uh, man forgot that all deities reside in the human breast, he would write. Uh, so you could make a, a strong case for him being um, uh, an atheist. I say he didn't really fit into any boxes. He just sort of created his own system. Uh, and that includes uh, his the mythology that's uh, in all his, certainly all his later works, where he sort of rejected the existing mythologies that most artists and poets worked with which at the time were classical which were greek or roman or or a lot of a lot of um uh biblical sort of stuff and he sort of invented this entire new mythology of his own because that they fitted how he perceived the world in a way that the existing um uh frameworks that we all sort of inherit in in western thought he just found them all sort of lacking. So he sort of created his own way. Um, uh, oh, it's, it's quite stubborn. It's, it's like he just refuses to take on board all the existing um, uh, frameworks of, of Western thought because, as, as he sees it, they're wrong. They're just, they're just not right. So he just has to create his own uh, uh, way of uh, experiencing everything. And that has made Blake very difficult for a lot of people when they sort of come to him um it's a lot better now because the 20th century was a period of a huge academic study of blake and and working out what his system was and his mythologies and what his references was and how he sort of thinks we're in a much better position for making sense of what he was telling us now after all this sort of work has been done but yeah it's a totally unique perspective on the cosmos and that to me suggests that it's something very very real it's very and very very valid it's all the preconceptions have just been swept away and it's just how he sees everything uh and and the more you go into it uh the more rewarding it is because blake has this brilliant ability to make you just grasp things from a different perspective that no other writer or painter has i think Hmm. I mean, it sounds as though he was very much doing his writing and his art for for himself. Yeah, I mean, he would have loved an audience, (laughs) (laughs) a a paying audience. If there had been a paying audience, he would have been delighted. Um, And in in his later years, there was a, a group of young artists who called themselves the Ancients who got him. And that meant an awful lot you can see a real change in him when he gets that sort of recognition even if it is only from a, a small group of people but as far as he was concerned he was doing it for himself and the spirits it was the creation of art was self-evidently valid in itself the act was uh, enough um yeah mm, so i mean your book is called william blake versus the world so is that the rationale that he had and the reasons that he he created his works? Was that in part why he he, he wasn't sort of 
accepted in his own time or did he rub people up the wrong way? Uh, a bit of all of those, yes. Um, I think when you tell the story of, of Blake's life, um, it can quite easily seem tragic. It can seem like a man, an artist, uh, who was rejected by his peers or mocked uh, or dismissed or ignored, a lot of time just ignored, um, who had one uh, exhibition in his in his life, which was a brother, above his brother's shop, and they sold nothing. And they got one review that called him an unfortunate lunatic. And he was buried, uh, he was given a pauper's burial in Bunhill Fields after he died, uh, penniless. And when you put it in those terms, it does seem like a really tragic story. Uh, and it was the world had defeated him. But that really isn't the story of William Blake. There was an entirely different battle going on, on a territory of Blake's choosing, on completely sort of uh, different terms. I always loved the story. Um, there was a, girl, a little girl, she was about six, and she met an ill Blake when he was very, very old. Um, and he said to her, I hope one day you'll be as happy as I am. And she looked and he, he was he was this old, penniless, disheveled artist. And she just couldn't understand why he'd said these words to her. It just it, everything in the values that she was being taught in the way of looking at the world made what Blake said seem insane. But finally, I think she was about 80 years old. By the time she reached about 80, she got it. She understood what he'd said to her uh, and that he was essentially as he said he was this was a man who was living in paradise um and it's yeah it took her all her life to, to, to work that out um there's the story of um william blake versus the world is very different to to the world versus william blake is essentially what i'm saying it was on his terms his life was just so rich and 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 joyful and um and, and blissful and rewarding and golden. Certainly towards the end, there was, there was, there was bad parts of it, don't get me wrong. Uh, but in, in terms of um, being able to see the, the world around him and transform it via transforming himself into this Jerusalem, into this golden sort of, this, 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 this glorious state, um, that's what he did. That's what he could do. And, you know, that's what all of us would uh, would sacrifice everything else to be able to do, I think. You know, as he was rich in every single way except financially. But, you know, that's the that's the least of your concerns if you're rich in all the other ways. Hmm. Definitely. Do you think, though, that with this ability and with First Fold Vision, the, the quote-unquote real world, was that the one that he struggled with the most if, if he struggled at all yeah single vision yeah he had no real time for it he had um i mean to, to put it in a bit of pers perspective this was during the age of enlightenment and essentially what was changing in the world was that previously faith had been the primary way of understanding uh uh what the world was and how we should live our life faith was the sort of primary sort of virtue and in the age of enlightenment, that changed and people sort of said, well, instead of faith, how about reason? Maybe reason should be the, the fundamental thing. 
you know, and Blake didn't really have any problems with the uh, the move away from faith, but he understood that reason was just like a small, finite, limited part of what the mind was capable of. It was this this um, this sort of this sort of rational, um, blind in many ways, um, single vision, um, and. That if we trusted that over the rest of the mind, then we were just missing out on on so much. So he he was very much sort of arguing against the uh, flow of the times. He was arguing arguing against reason and dismissing of people like Newton and Locke and people who he saw as this part of this this move to this rationalist sort of single vision. Um, yeah, and and to to you know to ways that we would now see as as unfortunate he would uh you know he didn't believe in um atoms he didn't believe that the world was round he didn't believe in anything that was uh that was worked out rationally he only believed in his senses and in his perception and how his mind perceived things so notions like that the world was was flat well that's how the world appeared you know so that's what he, he thought it was and though people had rationally argued that no 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 here's all the reasons it's round. He sort of wasn't taking that. And uh, now we would sort of go, well, that's you know very much uh, a mark against him, I would, I would guess you'd put it, which it absolutely is. Um, but I guess at the time when the world was shifting so heavily towards reason, it's probably easier just to sort of fight against reason than take a more sort of nuanced stance where you go, well, actually, these aspects of reason are useful, but we need to remember that there are things outside it. It's the things outside it that, that's that's important. Mm, I mean, at the time, did he have people around him who shared these interests in the more sort of esoteric ways of, of looking at the world? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like any time. It's only like now. There's a lot of it about, but you have to go looking under the stones for it. It's not... Um, it's not... Uh, uh, the it's not recorded and noted by the establishment, but... Um, Wherever you get people, you get people trying to understand the the, uh, the the stranger aspects of of their lives that don't really fit with the you know the standard under, uh, accepted version of consensual reality. Um, I, I talk a lot in the book about the Swedish mystic uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, uh, who was a little bit earlier than Blake uh, and who um, was a very sort of respected, wealthy, um, rational uh, figure in, in Swedish society. He knew the king, he was in charge of the mines, it made him very wealthy, he wrote books on mineralogy, uh, until he turned about 50, and then suddenly he sort of flipped from being this really sort of materialistically minded person into this spiritually minded person. And it sort of started with his, his dreams and they started to take over his life. And then he'd, he would go on uh, vision trips to heaven and hell and alien worlds. And he would write these books about what he'd sort of seen. That many parts of them sort of coincide with Blake. So Blake was very interested in them. Um, but there was aspects of Swedenborg that um, uh, Blake disagreed with. Because Swedenborg seemed to be just too pro-angels uh, for one of a better way of putting it, he was just interested in what the angels were uh, saying. Uh, for Blake, you need demons and angels. You you need heaven and hell. Um, Swedenborg wrote a book called Heaven and Hell after visiting them both. But 
Blake uh, in a reactor map wrote this thing called the marriage of heaven and hell, how these things needed both to be together. Um, so there was a lot of that about, and it's interesting. I, I don't know if you'll know anything about this. I've just started to, to read it. Um, this, this, this trend, they call it sliding in teenagers today. Does this mean anything to you, Rick, sliding? I'm not sure. I've, I've heard that term, but I, it probably isn't what you're going to talk about. What does it mean to you? Well, it, it's, it's, it, from the way it's described, it's very similar to what was happening to Swedenborg, except it's 21st century teenagers who are deeply into Harry Potter fandom, uh, trying to alter their reality so they can get to Hogwarts to sort of date Draco. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's, um, and the, they, there's various ways of, of going from what, what they call CR, which is current reality, into DR, which is your desired reality. Um, uh, and one's lying down in a starfish shape, sort of counting backwards, or there's another one where you visualize the person you want to meet and you chase after them, you jump down a rabbit hole. And they're in, often done at that sort of hypnagogic state between waking and sleeping. And it seems very linked to lucid dreaming, uh, but it's supposedly slightly different because you're sort of awake. Um, but it's essentially the, it's uh, deliberate um, shifting from normal reality into the world of imagination. And it's going on amongst all these teenagers on TikTok who bizarrely, whereas, you know, whereas Swedenborg would go to heaven and he would go to hell and all these sort of things, they just want to go to Hogwarts and they want to date Draco. And it's really bizarre, this the, the, the desire to go with these sort of sociopathic public schoolboy things for teenage girls is still, still, still something we haven't moved away from. It's very, very weird. Um, but yeah, I, I just I just love that you know you you're reading away books about you know 17th century um, Swedish mystics and how they and their 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 trips to heaven and hell and, and um, whilst at the same time on TikTok all these like like 16 year old girls are doing exactly the sort of same thing, uh, in, but in in their sort of framework. Um, so, but the, the overall sense that the imagination is something that um become can be it's like a fire that can be stoked into such a furnace that you become overwhelmed with it that that, that consensus reality falls away and that you can exist within you know the fire of your own mind um that i mean that's a central absolutely central to to understanding uh blake and, and his way of seeing the world but it's it's also important to realize it's still happening it's still happening and people are doing it now Mm. When I when I was reading about the first fold vision and, and second fold vision and and Newton's sleep is such a great term. I love it. It does make me mm. think of the bitter arguments that there are between people who are interested in UFOs about whether these things are nuts and bolts craft or something else. And there's a real dividing line between those two camps and other areas of of paranormal interest, such as Bigfoot. Some people will die on the hill that Bigfoot is this very much literal zoological creature. And other people are like, well, no, it's it's something different. It's something more, it's not imagined. It it could be imagined, but it has this imaginal quality to it or it's non-corporeal. 
it has this element where it's very much related to the mind. And I really liked that that sort of breakdown of the, the, the types of vision that Blake was describing that were really helpful. And I, I think they're a good way of looking at, at things when you, when you have an interest in, in the esoteric subjects. Definitely. It's a, it's, it's a good, solid model that he's, he's come up with. And I was particularly um, uh, struck by how works. I'd, oh, about 15 years earlier, I wrote a book about Timothy Leary. Uh, and I wrote about his model of seeing the world. It's this eight circuit model, which uh, writers like Robert Anton Wilson have popularized. And I was struck how much of Blake fits so well and how much of what people like Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary were saying, um, in particularly the extent to which our perception of the world outsiders is, uh, to a large part, a, a self-portrait, um, was all there in Blake, as a man is, so he sees as Blake, as Blake wrote. All these, all these ideas that, were, that seemed to be cutting edge in the psychedelic 1960s um, were already sort of there. Uh, and in, yeah, and in Blake, the um, the sense, the importance of the imagination as the creative um, source of the world around us uh, is 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 very very strong. As he said, everything uh, existed once first imagined, or or words or words to that effect. You know, if you look around where you're sort of sitting now and everything you'll see first existed in the human mind whether it's that laptop you're you're staring at at the moment or the words on it the language the the, the chairs you're sitting on the the, the 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 you know the laws of the land the the building of everything around everything around you was was uh from the mind was from the imagination that's become the world uh, and the world is the thing that's shaped and created um uh, by the mind that's uh that's something blake sort of pushes you know all the all the way basically it's it's the uh the world is the creation of the mind and um once you realize that um and understand that and accept that then uh you're going to get on a lot better with how things are <laughs> and how things appear to be yeah um in the another part of the book um I, I really liked was you talk about how quite early in his life <clears throat> I think he was working as a apprentice engraver and he was in Westminster Abbey and he was yeah. sent to do the the drawings of the tombs of the of the ancient, of the kings and and the, and the royalty that were buried there mm-hmm. and how he would whilst he was there he would see visions of yeah. people in Westminster Abbey and and it made me Chanting think monks and yeah like yeah that. and i mean monk monk ghosts are a ten a penny <laughs> lots <laughs> of places have them but but i do know i mean from personal experience when you go into a church especially a, a grand cathedral it, it does have an effect on you it definitely mm. i mean i've never had that happen to me but they do definitely fire my imagination they're the sort of buildings that you kind of I feel as though they're, they're quite easy to form a connection with because they're quite inspiring. They they encourage you to look up. That, that's exactly it. It's almost they're so tall. They're so um, it's like it's like the sky's been lifted off. 
It's it's mm. it's it's like the, the you know the what's above us, the heavens above us, have just being pulled back whenever, you, and you just look, and it goes up and up and up, and it sort of keeps going, and that automatically sort of puts you in that frame of mind, and the sort of um, the whole gothic stone thing, the whole sort of sense of it being eternally there, or um, or that the past is like physically present, is, is, is the past is like materially there, that sort of thing. These these all have strong, uh, uh, these are strong and powerful things, and they have they definitely have effects on us. As the the uh, the architects of the great cathedrals, you know, they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, these are powerful yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. Um. Earlier on in the conversation, you you talked a little bit about um, Blake's personal mythology, and I'd really like to talk about that a little bit. Um. Where does that begin? When he, when he starts to sort of populate his world with beings, yeah, it was. It starts pretty early in the seventeen nineties. Um, he starts to introduce these characters called Orc and Loss and uh, things like that into it into his work, and he never really explains who they are. It's almost like he knows, so that uh, it, the assumption is that you should know as well. It's it's. Um, they're generally considered to be all of them to be aspects of the mind. Uh, this this is partly because um, Blake is very very clear that the imagination is the is the source is the cauldron that the mind is where all these sort of things come from. So he does sort of state it fairly fairly clearly at, at places. But we now tend to see it. You know, he was he was writing you know a century before Freud and. And young and, and people like that, where there was no sort of field of uh, psychology, and he sort of seems to have lacking the field of psychology. He seems to have almost invented it in an artistic form in a creative way, so that he could see how these different parts of the mind sort of interact with each other and clash and uh, uh, and, and fight with each other. And he sort of div- divided the mind into four. Uh, beings uh, called the Zoas, the four Zoas. Um, one of the one of which is uh, Urizen, who's the rational side, who's a very very important figure in his mythology. And really, it's the rise of Urizen, which is where things start to go wrong for the human race, as as, as Blake saw it. Uh, and as as Urizen gains more and more power, he's this sort of patriarchal um, law giving figure who's linked with language and reason particularly um the other zoas which is lover the emotional aspect of this tharmas who's, who's sort of a really a physical side uh, and a sexual side and um there's a persona uh who's the the creative side who forms this character called loss um these get it all gets out of balance and and these uh uh these, when when Eurozone sort of takes over, it prevents us from having access to the divine, essentially, to that 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 light inside. Uh, and so, a lot of his work is really aimed at trying to understand what's blocking this this sort of this sort of golden illumination that, that should be sort of you know flowing through us uh, and analyzing the aspects of the mind that are preventing it i guess hmm, because uh, Eurozone is 
is very similar to to demiurge in Gnosticism. Very similar, yeah, very much so. Do you think that the Blake? I mean, I know that the demiurge comes from Plato. Um, yeah. So, it, it, do you think he probably read yeah, uh, along I, the, um, I, sort of along those lines? And I think so. Blake seems to have had access to far more interesting and esoteric books than you would expect for uh, you know a, a working class guy in London in, in the, the late seventeen hundreds. He seems to have read a lot of really interesting things, and we're not entirely sure exactly what. But the the character of Eurizen, and in particular the way he believes that he's God, that he's the creator God, even though he's blocking the real sort of light that's behind him, is such a Gnostic thing. It's so um, it, it's so similar to that demiurge that you were talking about that it's uh, he must have got it that way. Well, I mean, there's certainly aspects of Blake's thought that differ from Gnosticism, or at least traditional Gnosticism, particularly his views on the body. He's very much pro the body. He sees the body as part of the soul and uh, and things like that that uh, are different to certainly how most of the Gnostics sort of sort of felt. So he's not a complete sort of take. But the the um, the sense of this this figure Eurizen um, as the demiurge is very strong in a number of some of Blake's most famous paintings. Um, particularly there's one called The Ancient of Days, which is this this sort of bearded, uh, godlike sort of yeah. figure. One of my favourites. It's amazing, isn't it? He's sort of leaning out of this this globe that's behind him, which is the divine light, which he can't see because he's leaning out. Um, and he's in this formless void and it's whipping his beard sideways and he's sort of leaning down with this golden compass to sort of create the the, the, the limits of the, the, the rational sort of finite world. And he's... Um, it's very easy to see him as the God of the Old Testament, this, this creator God. Um, but when you, when you look at how Blake understands this character, it's like, well, here's a, here's a good example. Um, you know, when you're born, when a baby is born, he has no internal model of the outside world. It's just he's getting all this information from his senses, but he doesn't know what, what it is or 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 how he should sort of understand it. It's just noise. Um, and eventually, first thing he starts to work out is the difference between light and dark. This is why if you've got a baby, they'll usually be drawn to sort of checkerboard patterns or things like that. They, they get light and dark very, very quickly in a way that they, uh, before they understand color. They have no concept of color. There's just, there's just this noise from all their senses and they don't know what it is. But they get light and dark and then they might sort of get you know, hot and cold or hungry and not hungry. And they sort of build up a understanding of the world through these opposites, through these these contraries. This is this is what we all do. Um, and if you then go and look at the book of Genesis, where there's this this creator God, uh, and he's in this huge formless void, and he sort of goes, Well, you know, that can be light and that can be dark, and that can be land and that can be sea, and you know. Uh, and, and so forth. He starts, he's, he thinks he's creating everything, but really he's just labeling it. He's just rationalizing. It. He's sort of casting his own sort of framework uh, onto, onto this sort of cosmos. Um, and he believes that he's 
creating it, but really all he's doing is he's creating uh, a system to sort of comprehend it. Uh, and this this delusional um, belief that our mental framework is the real thing uh, is what Blake sort of sort of mocking or attacking um, so so frequently in in his work. Um, that whole notion that the map is not the territory and the menu is not the meal, that, that our mental model uh, of, of the world is not the world, uh, but it appears to be. It really does appear to be. It's so plausible and so convincing and it's so easy to sort of fall for. Um, and and Eurizen's fallen for it. And because Eurizen's fallen for it, he thinks he's God of it and he's not. Uh, and the, 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 the need to... For years and to realize how limited his model is um, is a big big part of, of Blake's worldview I would say I, I guess I'm going back to what we were talking about before but I mean it, it sounds like he wanted to tell the world something important but at the same time he was content with just him knowing it I'm trying to work out whether did he want more people to to realize this do you think he thought that those in eternity un- saw his work essentially, and that was enough for him. And in many, it does have a. You do get a sense from reading Blake that that the notion that two hundred years later there's all these people studying it and, and understanding it and starting to get it. You almost feel that he sort of expected that, that he was you know it wasn't for people in his own time, but eventually people would get it. Um, that that oh yeah, I often feel that about that. I mean, I, how accurate that is, I don't know. Um, but you know, he he sort of invented this this whole new way of printing that would have been that would have made a mass production of his illustrated uh, uh, work um, much cheaper and things like that. But there just wasn't an audience for him. You know, he he would sell maybe a dozen copies of, of something. And it would have been much easier just to, to do them all out by hand and with, you know, without creating all this complicated printing things where he had to write everything in backwards and, and things like that. He was all set up for a mass audience. But, uh, you know, the, the 18th century, early 19th century um, uh, establishment, I guess, for want of a better word, just didn't understand what he was trying to tell them at all um and it was i think it was a little heartbreaking for him but it didn't stop him in any way shape or form it's it's almost like it's almost like he knew that we would come later and understand him that's how it feels to me anyway Mm. Uh, one of his most famous one of the ways he's best remembered is is jerusalem but the but the hymn that we know is only a, a tiny portion of a greater work that he wrote i mean yeah. How representative of Blake is is that him? Um, on, on one level, incredibly representative, but the way we sort of perceive the hymn is not the. Um, the it was set to, to music by Hubert Parry around the First World War, and it was a very sort of um, martial and sort of patriotic sort of uh, piece of music, almost jingoistic at, at, at times um except it's brilliant <laughs> so that's the music they said it is so good it's such a great piece of music that you could almost forgive that that sort of flag waving last night of the prom sort of 
aspect to it. Um, it was we did it. We did a wonderful thing when, when I got to launch the book. We did a thing at the British Library, and and Kay Tempest, uh, who's the uh, president of the Blake Society, uh, came along to do a reading, and I got her to read essentially the lyrics to Jerusalem in context, in the um, the the preface to a, a longer poem called called Milton that he that he wrote, uh, and just with the you know the paragraph or so before. They suddenly become this sort of rallying cry to sort of overthrow the sort of the insipid and uninspired establishment that we have now. The what he calls the hirelings of the court, the university, the camp, which is the military. Um, these these ignorant sort of foolish hirelings, he calls them, who um, have been blinded by uh, a university education uh, into you know believing that the uh that the divine is away from them and not inside them uh and um and who just turn out these just sort of idiots for want of a better word the idiots who are running who are ruining things and it's a real rallying cry to use our imagination as artists and painters and architects and everything just to overthrow the the um the current system um and so when you get you know like schools like Eton and all the public schools just singing Jerusalem and just not really getting what it is that they're trying to sing. You know, it is, it is deeply ironic on many levels. Hmm. It's another example of where uh, an original work has been edited and, and a lot of context has been lost. So with a book like the, the Bible, the Bible has been not had books taken out of it, added to it and you hmm. know, whatever, whatever was there originally. The original context of what was in those books is is lost. I guess we're, we're left with a, an edit, <laughs> almost. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and um, when you get uh, large institutions like the, the church, with priests and all these sort of layers of, of people, and uh, it becomes codified and it becomes um, uh, a fixed way of sort of dealing with these things uh it will be um interpreted in such a way as to support those organizations rather than get to what it's actually trying to to say you know what it's actually trying to say uh and the um the part of us that grasps what religions are trying to tell us that sort of that that sort of internal experience of something more gets lost gets absolutely lost in in the way these, these things are there um but fortunately there are you know people like blake who will come along uh and, and remind us what it's really about you know what's what what all those things really should be about hmm. um for you is is there a, a piece of writing piece of poetry or a, a piece of blake's art that that sums up his what he was trying to get across um the best yeah uh, i mean i've got i've had to choose one i think i'll probably choose a, a work he wrote in the 1790s called the marriage of heaven and hell um which was uh, an illustrated um uh mainly poem um where he's basically criticizing swedenborg who i mentioned earlier and in doing so, he just um, 
writes down how he sees things to explain why Swedenborg's wrong. So it's one of the clearest sort of um, examples of him expressing his philosophy. It's one of the most. It's 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 a real key to sort of unlocking a lot of a lot of things. But it's funny. It's really funny. There's a lot of sections about where he'll sort of meet an angel. Uh, and uh, he'll tell a story just to show the, how stupid the angel is. <laughs> really like, and it's this lengthy section called Proverbs of Hell. They're all these wise things he's learned from walking around hell, uh, where a lot of his most sort of famous sort of one-liners, you know, sort of come from the uh, things like the uh, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And um, oh, there's, there's, there's hundreds of little really pithy sort of little great little lines uh in in there i really love the marriage of heaven and hell it's it's arsy in the best way but it's it's smart and it's it's funny and it's you know it's just it's it's yeah it's life-changing it's i mean it's there where he says um thus men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast which is you know it shouldn't be utterly heretical because in the in the Gospel of Luke, it says the kingdom of heaven is within, at least in the mm. James translation. So that idea is there, but it's just, you know, the way you're taught in a Western Christian sort of country, your upbringing, the, the idea that the kingdom of heaven is within is really not there anyway. The, the, you know, heaven is always beyond it's uh, it exists, but not, you can't go there. Maybe after you die, you can go there. You can't go there now. Um, uh, with Blake, that's not the case at all. It's it's, mm. it's, it's it's within you. It's it's got to grow within you. You've got to sort of allow it to sort of sort of come through. So it's this real sort of shift in in um, in how we're raised to see the world and how we we're, we're able to sort of frame that which is beyond us um which is why i think blake is so so useful now in this in this as i say this fairly secular 21st century where we're all sort of rational and you know we don't sort of believe in a lot of all that sort of stuff um but blake manages to sort of show you know where where exactly it is uh, the example i always use is um is hell you know most people don't believe that hell is a real physical place with a set location that you could in theory sort of go to and, and visit or be sent to or anything people generally don't believe that yet we've all met someone who at some point has been living in hell and we sort of we know we know to deny that would be wrong to deny what they experienced would be wrong that it is uh, it's serious and 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 valid. And once you accept those ways of thinking about God and uh, heaven and hell and angels and demons and all these things as internal states, um, the notion that well, some you could be living in paradise starts to become like a plausible sort of thing. Certainly, when Blake was um, claiming that you know he was often in paradise that's what he meant that's exactly what he meant and his his giant poem jerusalem which is about london being turned into jerusalem he doesn't mean that people come along go to saint pancras and they build these golden pillars and they they turn pavements and rock into into gold physically it's that the changes within us it's within us and that's projected out how do we 
how we perceive the, the, the place around us, which in Blake's face was London, and an internal change could turn that into paradise. Um, I've no idea what your question was, Rick. I've just—I <laughs> think I've just went off on one there. <laughs> no, that was that was brilliant. I think you're right. I, when th- things become over-rationalised, there is this unfortunate way in, in which things seem to either have to exist or not exist, or be real or not real. I I often find this when. When I meet someone for the first time and we get talking about what we're interested in, and I, I say, well, I'm interested in you know, the paranormal and things like that. And they're like, well, do you believe in ghosts? And I could just give them a short answer and say yes. But the longer answer is, so, well, I don't, it's not so much I believe in ghosts. It's more I'm interested in what they are because they, they, have, a, they have an existence, but mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. And I don't need it to be real. I just, it's for me to kind of work, to, to kind of find that for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a product of the you know that it's it's two hundred years since the, the the birth of this age of enlightenment that we're talking about, and it's sort of got to the point where like officially only the material exists, and anything that's immaterial must be you know some strange quirk of that mushy brain that we we you know that we have, uh, uh, and the immaterial must come from the material. But really, there's only the material. The material is things that you can measure and touch and things that are physically there. And, and so all things like um, uh, emotions and um, just the experience of being alive, you know, things like love, things, things like that, things that aren't material. They're just sort of weird little quirks of, 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 of the system. And, um, you know, I think deep down, most of us just go, Right, is it? It's not right, but it, that's the that's the world we're sort of raised in. That's what how we're sort of taught to perceive things. Um, and I think what makes Blake so important is because there are in every culture throughout time. There's all these accounts of people having these visionary experiences where what they experience is so profound to them. Uh, more so than the, the material world, but it's ineffable, and they can't get it across, and they can't explain it, and they can't allow other people to experience what they've experienced. So it's it's easy to dismiss. It's very rare that you get a person who who went through all that. But was also such a good enough artist and a poet and a writer and an illustrator and an engraver who can produce all this work that's just so striking that's just so otherworldly that when you when he presents it to you you have to believe him it's not plausible that he could have come up with this sort of stuff if, if he hadn't been you know he, he would say he sees in vision everything that he paints and you just have to believe that when you look at his work uh, so it's so rare to get that combination of someone who can experience these things but also express them in a way that the rest of us can can go oh my god yeah that's real oh yeah i think that's real now yeah so that's yeah that's what i think about uh what makes blake such a such an important voice and one that it's so worth just just spending the time to 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 look at him and understand him and listen to what he's saying because it is such a 
enriching and um, it does improve your life. The quality, the quality of your life improves it. It's, so it's well worth doing. I heartily recommend everyone out there who's maybe thought, oh, Blake, yeah, something interesting there. Look into him. It's just, it's worth it. Definitely. You can get a, get a copy of your book. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> I wouldn't say no if that's your preferred method. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, I know in, in 2019, there was a big exhibition at, um, at Tate Britain. I mean, do you think now that that William Blake is getting towards the position where he's appreciated as much as he should be? Yeah, I think he's getting there. It's um, he's interesting because it's not like, I don't know, like someone like Shakespeare, who the sort of establishment hands down to you. You know, there's the, the Royal Shakespeare Company and there's the Globe and there's lots of Shakespeare on the BBC and you're taught it at O level or A level or GCSE or whatever it is next these days. It's so, it's something you're sort of you're given by the system. Uh Blake very, very rarely, maybe the Tiger, maybe you'll hear Jerusalem. But beyond that, he tends to sort of basically bubble up through the sort of the cracks in, in the sort of low parts of culture. You find him in comic books. You find him in video games. You find him in music. You see in graffiti, in, in things like this. These all these different ways that he all sort of um, horror films. He pops up a lot in horror films. He finds ways to people um, that are not top down. If you know what I mean, there's, it's a much more sort of bottom up. Well, there's both. You know, there's the last night of the prom scene in Jerusalem, and then there's some. You know weird Neil Gaiman sort of comic or some, some black metal album or, uh, or or something like that. He sort of comes from all these different uh, different angles, and uh, which strikes me as incredibly healthy. Um, I, I, I always love the fact that, you know, that there isn't uh, an English national anthem. Officially, there just isn't one. Uh, officially, we use the British national anthem, which is God Save the Queen. But there is, and it's Jerusalem, and we all know it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's so much better than it being given to us. If, it was, we, if we were told, oh, Jerusalem, that's the English national anthem, you'll have to sing it. It wouldn't be half as special as just everyone just deciding, oh, Jerusalem, that's what it is. It, 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 it has a, um, that gives it an authority that uh, it would it would otherwise be lacking, uh, and I do I do love that about Blake the way he sort of he, he you know the he, he he finds different routes to you, and twenty twenty seven will be the bicentennial uh, that'd be two hundred years since he died, uh, and he died saying he could see uh, heaven he could see eternity he could see this blissful state he was going to, and in in the poem Jerusalem, he says, every 200 years, a door to eternity opens. So, you know, come 2027, I think that's that's the time. And if, if we're not celebrating Blake, we've gone horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I mean, um, at the beginning of your book, you describe a, a dinner party. And I'm just wondering, I mean, if you were at a dinner party with William Blake, what, what question would you ask him? <laughs> what would I ask him? Ooh, yeah. I mean, you could, yeah. I'm not gonna. I wouldn't limit you to one question, but we're almost yeah, up for time. So, <laughs> sure. Um, I don't know. Uh, there's a there's a 
paint it as a lost painting uh, called the Ancient Britons um, that was huge. It was much bigger than, than anything um, he normally does. And one description refers to it as one of the best things he's done. Uh, and it's the one thing I would so love to see, this image, this this lost painting. I would I would ask him just to sketch it on a napkin so I could see what it was supposed to be. <laughs> there was even a drawing of it that got lost. It's just it, it, it's just been taken from us. It's just frustrating as all hell. Ironic, um, isn't it? That's that's really ironic that there's yeah. no. Maybe it'll come back in 2027. That would be good. Oh, then it will. If it was found, then yes, that would be that would be very good. I would be delighted with that. And I think I would just let him talk. <laughs> I think I think I'd shut up as much as possible and just let him talk. Well, John, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. Thanks for thanks for asking me. If people want to find out more about you and the book, how best do they do that? Um, well, my name is John Higgs, and if you go to johnhiggs.com, uh, that would uh, tell you everything you need to know, or you can find me on Twitter and all those sort of places. Um, uh, yeah, I'm around. If, if you know my name, John Higgs, you'll, I'll, I'll appear in Google. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. That's great. Thanks, Rick. It was great to finally do an episode about William Blake. His creative output offers a really useful insight into the role art can play in understanding the nature of reality and how the imagination is a fundamental part of that. In John's biography, he recounts a dinner party attended by Blake where a fellow guest wonders if he is an artist, genius, mystic or madman. I'd say there were definitely elements of the first three in there. I heartily recommend getting hold of a copy of William Blake vs. The World if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com it would be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.